I'm Stuart and this is a Sobering Thought podcast. This particular episode is a bonus episode where I'm chatting to Paul, who kindly agreed to answer some questions about addiction and the 12-step program. Before we get going, I just need to warn you, we talk about some serious things around recovery and our experiences. In doing so, it can be pretty heavy and there is the occasional swear, so you've been warned. Also at the bottom of this podcast are notes and links to anything I think is relevant, so check those out for further reading. So we sat down in the living room and with a quick press of record and play, on the old tape recorder, away we went. Paul's very kindly agreed to uh, come back and do a little bit extra. So this is a little bonus podcast where I'm going to just ask Paul uh, a few questions. We're going to discuss them. So the first question is not necessarily uh, a question per se, but more about advice. Uh, What to expect at your first meeting? And uh, what was your first meeting like? Man, uh, as far as for what my first meeting was like, I don't remember. Uh, I have I have no recollection. I remember um, I started going to a twelve step fellowship uh, when I was like sixteen after I had gotten arrested for the first time, and uh, everybody was was nice, but it's it's not really analogous to to real twelve step work. I mean, I probably would have started going after I went to inpatient treatment when I was 18. But man, you know, I don't remember any of those early meetings because I had zero interest in, in, in what they were selling. You I know mean, what I mean? For me, it was more of, um, uh, how can I, um, so I'm thinking of it more of an like nuts and bolts kind of thing. So I looked up where my nearest meeting was uh, on by, just by Googling it, found out it was literally across the street from me, went across at the time, there some blokes milling about, and they said, what are you doing here? And I said, I'm looking for a meeting. And they went, well, you've found the right place. Just walked through. It was just a set of tables and chairs. Had a, had a cup of tea, got myself a biscuit, sat down. We started going through the big book. And then, it's a good meeting. <laughs> and, then, uh, we, uh, and then there's someone who shares what's called Top Table, where they do uh, experience... Um, God, I forget now. Experience, strength, and hope. That's it. Experience, strength, and hope. I always forget that. Um, Which is like their share. Yeah. And it can be on a step or it can be on another subject or just a a general share about their lives. And then uh, we usually have a quick break and then it's open to the group and people can talk about what they want. Well, okay, I'll put it to you this way. I I will talk about the meetings from the point when I got sober back in '09. Right. You know, because that's that's when it hit me. That's when I remember. That's when my actual recovery began, you know. So when I was locked up in the treatment center, and, and I say locked up because this was a county-run lockdown treatment facility, um, and uh, it was sort of like an alternative to going to prison. Um, that's like a good alternative. Yeah. And, uh, and so there was a guy who would become my sponsor, and then another guy who would become my grand sponsor, and, uh, and they would come in the treatment center, and, and I remember him saying, you know, if any of y'all care, which a lot of them didn't, if any of y'all care, read the first 16 pages and bring some questions next week, you know. And, uh, and it's not that I remember the specifics of what we would talk about in the meetings, but they were big book based. I did what they told me. I eventually asked that man to be my sponsor. 
before I'd even left the treatment center. I was not allowed a phone access in the treatment center, but I called him before I called my own mother when I got out of the treatment center. And, uh, but I remember he was about a year and a half sober, uh, which was an eternity to me. I mean, that seemed like an oh, eternity. Man. When you me. turn up and people are like, yeah, I've got 15 years sobriety or whatever, you're just like, that's come insane. On, come on. And, uh, and he had a wife and he had a job <laughs> and he had a pickup truck and he had all of these things that sounded so amazing to me. And, uh, and I wanted what he had and I was willing to go to any lengths to get it. And I'm so glad that, uh, that somebody who knew the solution and knew the book came in there when I was in there because it, it made all the difference. He exposed me to the solution and, and we got to work. And, uh, man, I love him so much. Of course, he, he became, you know, my best friend, one of my best friends anyways. And, uh, I still talk to him to, to this day, even though I'm in another country. So because, that, that kind of yeah. leads me on to another, one of the other questions. What is the criteria to be a sponsor? And what do you look for in a good sponsor? What do you think makes a good good sponsor? That they're happy. Uh, the the uh, the only criteria. So again, my opinion is irrelevant. The only criteria for a sponsor is somebody who's had a spiritual awakening by working the twelve steps. So to have completed the twelve steps, had a spiritual awakening. Yeah. And be doing well. That is the twelve steps. Yeah, yeah, Sponsoring yeah. newcomers is a twelve step. And and I've heard of people who don't work the steps, but they sponsor people. Well, no, you don't. You know, the, as as we talked about. There's, there's, the program is outlined in the first 164 pages of the big book, and there's something that you've just made up. And so the only requirement for a sponsor is they've recovered as a result of working the 12 steps, and they'll take a newcomer through the steps. That's it. A sponsor's not a therapist. A sponsor's not a banker. A sponsor's not a taxi. A sponsor is just somebody who's recovered by working the 12 steps and can take you through the 12 steps. Sobriety time is irrelevant. If we, I heard some guy today saying, Oh, you need to find somebody with five years. Are you kidding me? If the, <laughs> if the old timers waited, if they even waited one year to start sponsoring people, none of us would be here. Wouldn't have grown. You are ready to take a newcomer through the steps once you have been through the steps and recovered. And right. if that happens in three weeks, then that happens in three weeks. Because again, the pace that we work, that's, 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 it's, the work is outlined in the book. How quick can you go through it? The old timers went through it very, 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 very quickly. Okay, so it's not, you know, oh, you need to wait this long. No, no waiting, no friggin' waiting. It's laid out in the book. Have you done the requisite reading? Okay, let's do the requisite work. So the only requirement for a sponsor is they've recovered as a result of working the twelve steps. So that's that's it. But if you're asking me how to find a good sponsor, a somebody who's been through the work and recovered somebody who knows the book, somebody who carries their book with them at the meeting, who shares the solution out of the book and not a bunch of stuff they made up, but somebody who's happy. Somebody who's happy. So I yeah. would say, I would say, recovered from the seemingly hopeless state of mind and body and had a spiritual awakening as a result of the steps and is happy because people who have had spiritual awakenings are generally pretty happy. And I don't mean uh, delusional. I don't mean, you know, you know life happens, but they're, they're, they're solid you know, the, the, the book tells us we absolutely insist on being happy, joyous, and free. Um, and my sponsor was, was happy. He was comfortable in his own skin. He knew who he was. And, uh, and, and I wanted that, man. I wanted that. So uh, the term, find somebody who you want what they have, 
I'd say in context, it's, it's, it's great because this man had recovered by working the steps. He was healthy. He, he, he was a good mentor. He was a good husband. He was a good father. I wanted what he had in that sense. Yeah. Um, so I'd say, yeah, find somebody uh, who you want what they have, but in terms of, you know, laid out in the program. Now, oh, yeah, he drives a Bentley. I want that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the criteria for a sponsor is somebody who's had a spiritual awakening as a result of the steps and is willing to take a newcomer through the steps. What do you, what do you think of the rule of um, same-sex sponsor? Again, it's something somebody made up. It's not in the book. I will tell you I have never sponsored a woman not because we seem to have come up with a custom of same-sex sponsorship, but, you know, especially like with the fifth step for your fourth and fifth step, how honest you have to get and how intimate of a relationship you end up having with your sponsor, I feel like personally, I'm not, I mean, bottom line, as far as the book concerns is concerned, it doesn't matter. You know, my grand sponsor he, he sponsors women because, you know, he's, he's older. I'm not going to call him an old man, uh, but he's older. And so he's very non-threatening to young women. They yeah. don't worry about being preyed on by him. Or, yeah. So I think he's a very effective sponsor. Personally, um, I'm in my 30s. I'm married. And um, I, I, it's just there's too many, um, I, not conflicts of interest, but A, I wouldn't want to make her uncomfortable or my wife uncomfortable. And B, I wouldn't want her to feel like she couldn't be totally honest on her inventory yeah. because I'm a man. I just feel like men tend to be more honest with men and men tend to be... Yeah. So what is my opinion? My official opinion is it doesn't matter if men sponsor women or women sponsor men. It doesn't matter at all. Somebody just made that rule up. It is not in the book. I personally have not sponsored a woman for the aforementioned reasons. Yeah, that makes perfect sense to me. Even now, whatever I am, coming up for 20 months sober, Heck yeah. I still dream about booze. Do you still dream about booze? I do, usually it's a guilt dream in that I drink it and then just feel awful about it and have like all this guilt in my dream. And then I wake up and think, oh, thank God, it was not real. That, that's relief, ain't it? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember I, when I was, I was still at the sober house, so I was, man, maybe a year sober, something like that. And... Uh, and I had a dream that was so real. I woke up from it, got out of my bed, and got on my knees and started praying, God, please guide me what to do with this relapse, Lord. I've relapsed, and I don't know what to... And then it, it hit me that it was just a dream. <laughs> and I was so happy. Um, bottom line, man, I think it's like muscle memory. I, my, guess is, um, my guess is a boxer who boxed every day for 10 years, Yeah. even if he's been retired for 30 years, he probably still dreams he's about, about boxing. Yeah. Um, so in, in that sense, man, uh, do I think there's a correlation between a using dream, a drinking dream, and the fitness of, of your spiritual condition? Not at all. Zero correlation. Zero correlation. I think it's just my brain still processing Correct. stuff. Correct. Correct. Because I think when you sleep, it's basically, obviously, a time for your body to rest, but it's also a time for your, your mind to filter everything, sort it out, file it away, process it, and make, uh, and make good of what's happened and what you're thinking about. So obviously, if I'm still thinking about booze a lot, I'm thinking about the twelve steps. I'm, th you know, going through all that stuff. I think it still comes up, and my brain's still processing it. And then, and then obviously, when it f comes up in my brain, my brain goes, ah, booze. Ah, I know what you do with booze. 
You drink it. Yeah, and, and I mean, think about all the other things that we that we that, dream about that, that, that we that crazy. we dream about that that are on our that are on our minds. So, um, but yeah, I, I wouldn't want anybody to worry if they're working a program. I wouldn't want anybody to worry that they were dreaming at night. Yeah, that think they had a, that they had a relapse. No, you know. Um, do I think it's normal? Yeah, I think it's I think it's a hundred percent normal, man. You know, for me, some of the ones that I've had, um, I interpret as like. They're just they're just fears that come out in that way, you know. That because that's I don't know maybe something that subconsciously we train ourselves to fear fear of relapse whatever I don't yeah. know. But I can tell you one way that I know that my disease is still alive. Um, you know, towards the end of my use, I would shoot up cocaine. I wouldn't want to snort it anymore. And I had a dream years ago that I'd gotten some cocaine, but in the dream. I didn't sniff the cocaine. I had to find some needles. And I'm just saying, like, that's like, that was like, that's, because that's what would happen if I was still in my disease. I wouldn't have snorted Jeez. it. You know, I'd have found some needles. And so I had a dream that I had somebody had given me some coke, and I was, I wasn't snorting the coke. I was like, okay, got to find some needles. And I didn't end up using in the dream. But my point is, the subconscious insanity of the disease of addiction, that's what it means. And so, you know, we're not cured. Yeah. I've, since working the steps, I've never had the craving or the obsession, I, I should say, to put dope in my body again. But that being said, if I did put booze or dope in my body and the, the phenomenon of craving was triggered, I would behave uh, as though I had never been sober in the first place. My disease is not cured. It is arrested. I have recovered from it. Uh, I've been restored to sanity. But it always feels like it's just sleeping there. I think that's a good way to put it. I think that's a good way to put yeah. it. Because in the sense that, um, oh, there's a million of these analogies, but like, I can get shocked. They can pull the bullet out, stitch me up, and I can heal. I have recovered from that gunshot. Yeah. I do not then become bulletproof. No. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. If you good, shoot me again. That's a good analogy. You know, uh, so so you, you're right. And, and, and again, differentiate. The book says we recover from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body. The book calls us, when we've had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, it calls us recovered alcoholics. But we are never cured of this disease. What we have is a daily reprieve contingent upon the maintenance of our spiritual condition. You know, so, so well, this is too deep of an answer for the using dream question, but point being, the disease is always there. We treat it, we recover from it, but we're never cured from it. No, no. So what do you think of fake booze for drinkers? There's a lot of alcohol-free, and I must point out that when I first looked at it to, to buy some, I thought, oh, there's a great selection. And then when you look at it closely, it's actually got half a percentage. Yeah, it's got alcohol in it. And I was like, it. it's got alcohol in it. How the hell did that pass, like, government legislation and... Like, yeah, these are all like 0.5%. How is that legal? How is that? How can they put non-alcoholic on it? So there's actually very few 0.0, .0 proper non-alcoholic stuff. And of that, and this, is, this sounds really weird, there's one brand, uh, I won't name it, I, um, but that I occasionally have, which I quite like, and it tastes like a really light beer, and I have it with a little bit of lemonade, to, and it tastes like a shandy, and it's completely alcohol-free, right? And it comes in a can, like a little 33-centiliter can, right? And that doesn't mess with my head. That doesn't cause me any issues, right? 
But if I buy one that's in a glass bottle, like a beer bottle, I tried one of those, I had one, I had to put it down, I was like, no, I can't drink that, that messes with me. And it's like, a, it's a trigger. And it's, uh, and I, I find it a, a bit of an odd one. And also the alcohol-free whiskey that's just come out. And they made a gin too, I said. And a gin. I, I tried the, I tried the yeah. alcohol-free whiskey, and it was with Coke, it was really good. You could hardly tell the difference. I was like, bugger me. This is this is this is alarmingly good, and I had that over Christmas because that's what I used to drink over Christmas is all Jack Daniels and Coke. So I had this fake whiskey and Coke, and part of me feels a bit guilty doing it. I I, I can give you a black and white answer. I don't mess with none of that. I don't drink none of that. We'll never drink none of that. If you want from a program big book perspective, what I think the proper answer is, it is question your motivation. Now that being said, non-alcoholic beer has alcohol in it. Period. You know what I mean? So no, never. Nobody should in the program should drink that ever. My grand sponsor talks about he, he before he got sober. So you, you you don't think I should be drinking it? I didn't say for I didn't say I didn't say for for you. But if it's got even that point one percent alcohol, oh yeah yeah, I wouldn't drink it. No no it zero point zero. That's up to you, dude. I'd say my main answer would be question your motivation. I have zero interest in drinking any of those things. But as far as the stuff that's like point oh one or whatever, my grand sponsor. He, he, had, he was dry for 11 and a half months before he got uh, sober. And he tells this story because he was miserable. And, and when he finally got sober and worked the steps, he realized that real sobriety was happy. But when he was on his dry spell, he said he wasn't going to drink. And he bought two cases of non-alcoholic beer with the .01% or whatever. Yeah. And he went fishing and he drank both cases. Of course, it didn't get him drunk. But the point is... The uh, just that 0.01 percent was enough to chemically trigger yeah. the phenomenon of craving in him. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, so no, I'd never, I'd never mess with anything like that. Um, the uh, yeah, I don't get the craving. So that's when I, when I did it, and I thought, okay, so I literally have one of these of a night in front of the telly or at a barbecue, and I don't think about it again. It's just a nice drink. Mm-hmm. And that's when I thought, okay, I think I'm okay to do that. But if I'd had any sort of trigger or any sort of craving from it or any, like, I've got to drink the whole pack or whatever, then I would have just put them down straight away. No, you know, and, and, and with questionable situations, man, my my thing would be pray about it if that's, if, 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 you know, pray about it and question your motivation. Um, is your motivation to recapture the vicarious thrill of others at a pub or is it to... to to, to recapture the, you know, the spirit of the old day, then your motivations probably ain't great. Uh, yeah. but for me, no, I don't mess with none of that. I don't mess. I don't mess. And it's not that I have any fear of that, but I drank for effect. I, I didn't, it wasn't because I liked the taste of Jack Daniels and Coca-Cola. I prefer the taste of regular Coca-Cola. I drank Jack Daniels and Coca-Cola cause I like to get drunk. Yeah. So I, I have I have no desire to drink something that tastes like Jack and Coke that doesn't get me drunk. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, see, I was a bit different, and I actually like the taste of Jack Daniels and Coke. Yeah. And I actually like the taste of a light beer. Yeah, I mean, so I think the from a program perspective, the advice would be check your motivation. If there's truly zero point zero zero percent alcohol, there's no alcohol. I think from program perspective, the advice would be check your motivation. And I used to get hammered on gin a lot, but. A friend of mine had the alcohol-free gin. I was yes. like, oh, I don't want to drink that. <laughs> gin is horrible. Yeah, I no. only drank that to get shit-faced because yeah. it was cheap. <laughs> yeah, no, but so no, for me, no, I don't mess with anything like that. Yeah, man. okay. So when you quit and you uh, got on the wagon, as they say, 
Did you find yourself uh, getting replacements for your addiction? I mean, for me, I was absolutely nailing sugary drinks, chocolate. Bloody hell, did I eat a lot of chocolate. And I also found myself buying a lot of, trying to, how can I put this? On eBay, I found myself like buying things to comfort myself so and collecting things. So I found myself buying like a load of uh, old video games and stuff like that because that makes me feel sort of safe and comfortable and like reminds me when I was like 10 or 11 when I like before things started getting worse and and I was like happy just playing video games and not worrying about the world and that is you know I I bought a lot and then I sold it all and then I I've gone and <laughs> gone and rebought some of it again but now I kind of understand why I was doing it and how I, and trying to relive that like just being secure and filling out trying to fill a little bit of a hole with it yeah, and, and so, so the short answer is yes. Uh, fortunately, like the book talks about, it gives us a way of living that will solve all of our problems. So for me, I, I definitely uh, was overeating when I first got sober. Keep in mind, I was a very low-bottom drunk and dope fiend, so I routinely went hungry in favor of booze and dope. Yeah. Um, so, uh, and I, I, I truly enjoy food. So in the beginning, yeah, I was overeating and I did gain weight that got better just by living this 12 step lifestyle. Um, I was a heavy smoker, a nicotine user, uh, again, and, and no judgment on, on nicotine. That's not the same as booze and dope. I mean, that's not, for me, um, it became problematic because I was spending I found too- myself smoking more. I like, I hardly ever smoked. And then when I quit drinking, yeah. I ended up like there was. I used to occasionally treat myself to some Marlboro Reds, mm-hmm. and I just found myself being like, "Flipping heck, I need something." Going off buying a pack of twenty Marlboro Reds and like smoking them in, in like in a day. And oh just, yeah, and easily, just be... easily. So yeah, but uh, you know, I uh, got over that. I think a lot of people. Um, and again, these are all from a program perspective. These are all outside issues. It's not something you go into a meeting and talk about. But for us, I think we're, we're, we've got the freedom in this podcast to, t- to talk about them. So, you know, and I think people, a big one, um, and again, if you've done a thorough fourth and fifth step, you're going to be a lot better off on this. But a lot of people get screwed up with the sex relations, selfish sex relations, yeah. hurting others, in sobriety, yeah. hurting others. And so that, I think, uh, fortunately for me, I've been, you know, in a monogamous relationship uh, pretty much since I've been sober. Um, but uh, I think that, that that's another one people can get caught up in. And then shopping, yeah, dude, I, I love to shop. Uh, I've always been a collector, long before I put booze and dope in my body. When, yeah. I was, when I was about three or four, I collected screwdrivers. When I was, <laughs> don't know why. When I got to be about Maybe. five, I started collecting knives just because South Texas, you just, we just hunt, we hunt, we, we just like knives. I mean, most boys from that area. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. But I, you know, I had a lot of them. Um, and, uh, of course, as I've gotten older, I like uh, watches and clothes and cowboy boots and cowboy hats. And, and uh, But I think for me, in recovery, how I balance it is, I pray before I make a purchase. I pray before I buy cowboy boots. I pray before I buy a new watch. I question my motivation in the purchase. Uh, am I purchasing this thing for what other people are going to think? Or am I purchasing it because I love it and because I can buy it responsibly? So the the... Have I used food shopping uh, nicotine problematically? Absolutely. Yeah. Through being honest about my motivation and step work, does that stuff get reined in? 
Absolutely. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. That's what I found. Yeah. Is that I went, yeah. And the other thing was, when I stopped drinking, I was kind of expecting to lose weight because I thought, I'm not drinking all these Shoot, calories. good luck. And you then I was just like, 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 did I? Gosh, darn. I was just like, I, I put on, I didn't put on a lot, but I put on a little bit of weight and I was just like, oh, shit. <laughs> I was expecting to lose weight and you just don't because you're just... I think I weigh 50 pounds more than when I got out of treatment. Got a lot less hair, too. <laughs> uh, so my next question is, are there any films, music, or art in general that you feel is good at representing alcoholism, recovery, or just the way you feel? Is there anything that sort of stands out and you think, oh, yeah, that was me, or that was, you know? Yeah, uh, you know, Jason Isbell in the 400 unit. Jason Isbell is a singer of a band called the Drive-By Truckers, and uh, he he has his own act called uh, called Jason Isbell in the 400 unit. And uh, he he's one of us. I mean, I don't know if he's in a 12-step fellowship, but I, I do believe he's, he's a recovered drunken dope fiend. And uh, he wrote a song called Cover Me Up that I think, um, and I don't mean on any super deep level that it speaks to me, but but I hear that and I'm like, yep, Jason gets it. Um, and, uh, you know, for movies, uh, I like My Name is Bill W. You know, I like watching. I've never seen it. Yeah, that. it's fun. I like watching James Woods get drunk and stumble around. I don't know how, uh, how super... Historically accurate it is, but that's that's a fun watch. I mean, any, but you know what's interesting, man? You would think there's millions of us. Uh, there's millions of us in, in recovery. It's quite a market. <laughs> You'd think that it, that there would be a big market for a nut for a remake of My Name Is Bill W or something like right. that. So uh, so that's that's a fun one. But you know, for me, for music, um, you know, man. Um, I love my I love my freedom and I love music that makes me feel free and I and I listen to a lot of music I go to a lot of live music uh, I go to a lot of shows you know I went up to Glasgow to see a country music show because a guy from Kentucky I like was singing up there I mean I'll, I'll uh, music's very important to me but it, it more represents the freedom that I have now in a relationship with my higher power that I have now in this program this freedom and this hope because towards the end of my disease, I've always loved music, but towards the end of my disease, I could only listen to talk radio because music would make me feel hope and it was false because I didn't have any hope. I couldn't even listen to music towards the end of my active addiction. And so for me, it's just, it's just music in general. I love it. Uh, and, and, and the passion and the freedom and the hopefulness that it represents, man. And, uh, and I definitely, I feel the presence of my higher power when, when I'm jamming out for sure. <laughs> good oh like for me um the one of the big big things that i absolutely loved when i was an alcoholic when i was actively drinking was i was obsessed with fear and loathing in las vegas <laughs> that's a heck of a flick ain't it? And, and i was just like i just wanted to be hunter s thompson yeah and part of me still wants to be hunter s thompson like he was like the way he's portrayed in that is just phenomenal like my nights out used to be really messy and used to be crazy and used to be my own little English Hunter S. Thompson like long weekend of debauchery and, and uh, yeah and uh, abusing whatever I could get my hands on and it was it was a lot of fun and it was a lot of craziness and thank God I've managed to stop because it was not all good I tell you. It was, well you know it didn't end well of, for Hunter Thompson. It, no it didn't end well for Hunter Thompson. 
Yeah, but it was always there was one quote in, in it that always stuck with me, and it was like, "He who makes a beast of himself gets rid of the pain of being a man." And I always thought, even then, I thought I totally relate to that, and that I think was like me making a beast of myself, getting absolutely shit faced, causing chaos or whatever, was in a way me trying to fill that hole inside of me, trying to get rid of that monster. Um, and I, I know that sounds a bit pretentious and a bit over the top, but that even when I first heard that. And I thought, ah, there's something to that. There's some truth in there. Yeah. Yeah. And like um, a few years ago, I went to Comic-Con mm -hmm. in London and I went as Hunter S. Thompson. <laughs> and my mate went as my attorney. Oh, that's wild. And we got stoned and drunk. <laughs> and I found a case of beer someone had tried to stash outside and nicked it. And we were just, oh, it was a mess. But it was, it was a lot of fun. But yeah, <laughs> I feel like I'm really glad I got that out of my system. They were going around with a fly swatter, being like, "What the fuck do you mean, man?" <laughs> yeah, that was that was crazy. You know, you know, my thing, uh, um, like you said, get it out of your system. One of the reasons I count my blessings that my disease got so unspeakably horrible so quickly and at such a young age is that I never have to be forty-five years old with a career in question. Well, maybe I just drank too much in college. Like, no, no. man, friggin' <laughs> no, man. You were a friggin' dope fiend, hopeless drug addict, alcoholic dope fiend, man. And uh, so, so like you said, I, I do genuinely feel that I got it out of my system. Not in the sense that you can go on a bender and then feel better about it. That would deny the nature of addiction. But in the sense that. Um, it, it, it made it very apparent to me that I would never be able to drink and use successfully, which, which, as we talked about, was a big part of the first step. The other thing that I love, that I really related to, and I jokingly say that Louder Milk is my spirit animal. So Louder Milk is a TV show that is now available in England on Amazon Prime. They've done two series, and it stars Ron Livingston, I think the guy's name is, and he's excellent. And he plays a guy working the twelve steps. Who well, he runs a he runs a meeting, and he does the twelve steps. And it's a comedy, but it's very poignant and goes into like quite real subjects. And there was a lot I could relate to. And I don't know. It just made me see a lighter side of it and sort of not laugh at it, but like I feel that sometimes in meetings it's get all can get a bit serious. Yeah. And a bit drab, and you're just like. Come on, we've got to celebrate life as well and, and, you know, enjoy the fact that we're now sober. Sometimes I think that's lost a little bit. Yeah, and, and, and like it says on page 152, and especially the, the younger people worry about this, yes, you have shown out how you got from under. You say, yes, I am willing, but am I consigned to, to be, but am I consigned to a life where I shall be stupid, boring, and glum like some righteous people I see? I know I must get along without liquor, but how can I? Have you a sufficient substitute? And it says, yes, there is a substitute, and vastly more than that, it is a fellowship in Alcoholics Anonymous. There you will find release from care, boredom, and worry. Your imagination will be fired. Your life will mean something at last. The most satisfactory years of your existence lie ahead. Thus we find the fellowship, and so will you. And for me, um, you know, it talks about our levity and the deadly earnestness underneath. But the preamble from my home group back in Texas talks about showing the newcomer what happy sobriety is look like looks yeah. looks like and 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 you know like the book says we absolutely insist on enjoying life on enjoying life and that's why as we were talking about in the sponsorship question somebody's worked the steps and recovered and who is happy yeah um because 
if I'm not if I'm not having a good time, what's the point? I can be miserable and drunk. I'm still sober today. I'm still living this program today because I'm having a great time. Now that being said, my higher power got me sober so I could help others. But a brilliant byproduct of it has has been that I'm happy and I get to have fun and I get to travel and I, you know, yeah. the world becomes your oyster. You know what I mean? And getting back to what we had talked about when we had our talk on steps two and three, once you get on with this deal and you realize that your drink obsession has been removed and that seems like something that you always thought would be with you forever, that for the rest of your life you were going to crave booze and dope. And when that gets removed, you go, oh my gosh, what else is possible? Yeah. And you start living. Yeah. At first, like, I don't know, year 12, yeah, year 18 months of my life, it really did feel like I was processing this and going through this and getting on with this um, and recovering. And then very recently, last couple of months, I now feel like I'm moving forward in my life just a little bit. You know, just doing doing things, trying to better myself, trying to improve my lot and and be a better person and, you know, and actually cultivate a, a better life for myself and my friends and my family and, you know, people around me. And that is, that's what it's all about for me. That's, you know, that that's the, almost feels like step 13, you know, that's like the <laughs> final, you know, the... Well, and and and, and it, but it just said the most satisfactory years of your existence lie ahead. But look at where that is. It's in a vision for you. That assumes that you've worked the steps thoroughly and honestly, and 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 you're living this life. I mean, look at chronologically where it is in the book. But also, what it says is, you know, that material success comes after spiritual progress. It never precedes it. Yeah. I got out of treatment, and my only motivation was to work the steps with my sponsor. Not get a job, not get a girl, not get a car, not get a house. Yeah. My only motivation was to do the next right thing and work the steps with my sponsor. And the job came and the car came and the girl came and the house came. It feels you, like you, you get see. out of the way of yourself as well and the, and like the universe rewards you. Exactly. And that and that's that would have been perfect. We should we should have gotten to that point when we did our <laughs> third step talk because that's that's the deal, man. This is simple. What we have to do remains the same. We do the steps with the sponsors outlined in the book, and it falls into place. Yeah. So, obviously, uh, our listeners have obviously noticed that you're American. I am American. <laughs> and uh, I was wondering, what's the difference between the experience you've had in England for this? I mean, how long have you been here now? Since September, so... It's been around about six months. Around six months. You've been here half a year, and I just wondered what the difference is between your experiences in England versus back home in America uh, regards meetings and the whole fellowship and your experience. Is there much difference, or is it quite similar? Or The format's a little different, you know. Um, you know, the little things. Oh, these people hold hands when they pray. These people don't. These people give out chips to denote links of sobriety. These people don't. But I think there's regional regional differences like that in America, just as somebody who's been to meetings all over, uh, or in large parts in America, too. I, I would say the, the problems are the same. In America, you have people that work the program out of the book, and you have people that make things up and speak with authority as if it were the program. They have that same problem here. And you have the same good things, too. Hopeless people getting hope, and miserable people getting happy, and selfish people helping others. 
You know, um, I, I just, so, so, I mean, to answer your question, are there differences? Yes, but not really. No more than you might find in different parts of an American city or different states or, yeah. or anything like that. You know, bottom line, the program is the first 164 pages of the book. Uh, and if we're basing the fellowship around the program, it'll be pretty uniform. You see deviations when people get away from the program and start making it happy tea time where we whine about our problems. Right. You know? Yeah. yeah. Fair enough. And that happens here and in America. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 It's just interesting. I just wondered if there was any particular difference. I mean... I figured there probably wasn't. I was kind of expecting you to say what you did, but I just I just thought I'd ask. Nothing big. I mean, nothing nothing super stark, man. I mean, you know, and, and, and I'm a surprise... And I've also, you know, I've been to meetings in, in, uh, in Spain and in Greece and... Uh, uh, it does seem like they have more emphasis on chips in America. We love the chips. We just love them. <laughs> but and we... I, I, my, my, my wife kindly bought me one for my first year. I've never seen anyone else with one. Yeah, I, I, carry, I always carry mine around. Um, the, uh, what we said at my old home group was, uh, these are not the Academy Awards. This is not look what I did. This is look what... <laughs> God can do in 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 our yeah. lives. So uh, that's that's a, that's a, a big one. I would say the chips are great. Um, they're to show the newcomer that recovery and happy sobriety is possible. Um, I just physically wanted something in my pocket to remind me. If you look at my blue jeans on that fifth pocket on all my blue jeans, they all end up wearing a circle. Uh, yeah, because I always got my chip on me. Yeah, and, and also carry a silver dollar that somebody gave me many years ago, but. Yeah, so that is a big one. You definitely see. But, you know, when I, when I was up in New England, where, of course, uh, Bill Wilson is from, there's some very old AA meetings there. One of them that I went to claimed that they started the chip thing. I later had somebody else tell me that that wasn't true, that their group had started. But whatever. But apparently, back in the day, they used poker chips. Oh, right. Yeah, and, and I want to say that that group, and I'd spoken there and I'd attended there a few times, I want to say they still use poker chips, right? Instead of those special chips or key tags or whatever. Uh, right. yeah. Okay, fair enough. Um, and my final question was: How was your "quote unquote" coming out? Uh, and who have you told about your alcoholism? And what was their reception? So, two questions, really. You know, who have you told about your alcoholism when you you basically came out as an alcoholic? And what was their reaction? What was what was the reception? Did you? You know, what did you find? Well, you Because that was a big thing for me, to come out to my parents about being an alcoholic. Yeah, so for me, the good and the bad part of this is that my drinking and drug use was so abnormal so quickly at such a young age that everybody knew. Yeah. By the time I got my, I got my first drug arrest when I was 16, I went to my first inpatient rehab at 18, um, and then went to many rehabs and had drug arrest, many more drug arrests after that. So my family knew that I was a hopeless drug addict and alcoholic. Um, and all my friends, I mean, pretty much my high school friends, there would have been some red flags there. They would have, because I was always the last one awake at a party and I was, you know, it was clear that all I cared about was getting wasted. But my high school friends that yeah. I'd seen after I got sober, they were all pretty cool about it. 
But anybody who knew me after about the age of 18, 19 knew that I was a severe drug addict. So it wasn't it wasn't news. There's I mean, no regulation. I, yes, it was not it was not news. And um, so for me, the coming out was more um, doing my ninth step amends because anybody you know can have a period of abstinence but I was actually working a program and I think people knew that it was genuine because and we'll get into this when we when we talk about the ninth step but I would show up with money in my pocket to make amends for the money that I owed you you right. know what I mean is these people knew I was serious so that was more my coming out it wasn't the mystery that oh he was an addict no they knew I was an addict but that something was actually going to change. Um, and that, for me, I enjoyed very much. It was, it was spectacular. Uh, I, I was not afraid of it. I was not afraid to see these old people. Uh, uh, by old, I mean people that I'd, you know, uh, done wrong back in the day. So my coming out was more the fact that I was actually working a program, that I was actually recovering. You know, one thing that my sponsor taught me that his dad had taught him was, people may never believe what you say, but they can't help but believe what you do. And so did everybody think I was full of it? Yeah, how many times have I gone to jail and rehab before? But when they started seeing me walking the walk, that was very exciting to watch the people who had given up, not given up hope. I don't think many people in my life really gave up hope, but uh, that wouldn't have bet on me recovering anytime soon when they saw me getting a job, paying my bills, making amends, helping others. That was my coming out, and that was that was absolutely uh, was absolutely one of the best periods of time in my life. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's uh, those are the questions that I had, and thank you very much for your insight. That was uh, it was interesting to hear what you had to say about that. Thank you very much, and hopefully we'll get you back to do step four. Yeah. Yeah. We'll do we'll do step four next. That'll be that'll be fun, man. Okay. Thank you very much, Paul. Thank you, brother. And we ended it there. I hope you enjoyed it. Please remember to like and subscribe, and if you think it's good enough to recommend, please mention it to a friend. Coming in the next podcast, myself and Paul will be covering step four. Hope you can join us then. Cheerio!